Hello and welcome to Winning with Connections, the WWC podcast. I am so excited to be here with Mary Redding, who is a military spouse extraordinaire, but also has had, I don't know, five different careers at this point, since I've known you at least, and has a perspective around both government contracting as a customer and now as a provider. So Mary, I'm, I'm not going to go into all of the ways in which we know each other, but we did because <laughs> there are too many. But do you remember when we met at the Hiring Our Heroes first job fair that they did at the Washington Convention Center? And I think you were doing a video for Military Spouse of the Year, as was Haley Utlaut. And we were sizing you up as the competition, I think, at that point. Um, can you give me kind of a background of, of, of where you were at that point and what you had started and what you have been doing within the military spouse space first, actually? Sure. Thanks, Lauren, for having me on today. And that's funny that you were sizing me up as the competition. Totally. I have, I've always felt that we've been in, in such a partnership over the years. Um, I was a corporate lawyer at the time, a California licensed attorney and, uh, was married to an Air Force officer and found that moving with the military was not very good for a legal career, which required uh, a bar exam in every state, every new jurisdiction. So after we had moved a couple of times, I realized that it was not going to be practical for me to take a bar exam every 18 months or so for the remainder of my career, not to mention how difficult it was going to be to find a job. So I started a bar association for attorneys who were married to service members, and we started advocating across the country for licensing accommodations while we are in the state on military orders. Wait a second, because I have to ask this because this makes me so happy. How many states now have passed licensure accommodations of some stripe or another since you started this? It's it's almost to the point where I lose track. <laughs> we are up to 35, 36 states for the legal profession, but nearly all jurisdictions have passed some sort of licensing reform um, or accommodations for military spouses across all the, of the different professions that require a license. It's really remarkable. And I got to tell you, nobody was talking about this before you started. And so I have sized you up as competition for about five minutes and then realized that it was much better to cooperate with you. Uh, (laughs) And so we've done some really fun stuff together that we'll talk about on another podcast at some point. We'll talk about Homefront Rising uh, and whatnot. But you ended up really through networking and through kind of the power of that networking ending up, you ended up getting into the government space itself, right? Can you talk about that story? Yes. So my husband got orders to Washington, D.C. to serve as a DOD legislative fellow. We were settled in Arizona at the time. And so as soon as he got orders, I started reaching out to my network. I think that military spouses are experts at networking and leveraging relationships to find that next position. And coming to Washington, D.C., I knew that the the knowledge base I needed to obtain would be in the federal government. I wanted a government job. They had recently passed the military spouse direct hire authority. Right. And coming in on military orders, I knew that it would be easy 
easier for me to um, get a position in the federal government, uh, given the the network and um, that hiring authority. So I reached out to lots of different people, but you, Lauren, <laughs> were the most wonderful connector and introduced me to a number of people at OMB, the Office of Management and Budget at you know the White House where you had worked prior to moving overseas. And that network and your reputation and putting it on the line for me, I will be forever grateful. I ended up working with uh, and directly for OMB through the GSA Office of Government-Wide Policy, where I ran the Office of Executive Councils. Um, so it was a it was a great run in government and the perfect spot to look into every agency as we implemented uh, policies across the government. Yeah, you cut you literally covered every every agency. the The best part of this was that I was actually on a girls' weekend um, when you had called and said, "Hey, we're moving to D.C." and my good friend was staying up every night, relaxing with us, going to the spa and then staying up every night doing work because one of her people was just awful. And she was like, I got to find someone. I'm like, wait, I have someone. (laughs) Military spouse preference uh, allows for direct hire authority now. So you can do this. And I think within a couple of weeks, we had it moving at that point, which was really cool. But the best part of the story was that you ended up, I mean, it was great that you got a job. I was thrilled that you got a job. But you ended up staffing that entire office with military spouses. And that that office is still basically run by a bunch of really smart, really good military spouses, right? The leadership at the time and the leadership still really values that diverse experience. The role was to implement the president's management agenda and to assist the management offices within OMB to do that. So IT, acquisition, finance, real property. I mean, the list goes on and on and on on the different issues that we we touched. So having a diverse background, having that military spouse grit to just show up and figure out the next steps was so valuable to the office. And I know that the C-suite of the federal government, which is what we dealt with every day, valued that military spouse perspective. We were also able to draw on if one of our staff had worked in Texas and what the state level people were doing to gather some best practices. Right. Yeah, that was that was a pretty cool moment You know, to see kind of the, the second and third and fourth generation of that first connection was really neat. But so you have you have a number of years in government at that point within your your GSA White House kind of CFO council or I guess it's the executive council started at the CFO council, but but mm-hmm. went to the, the higher level. And then you left and you moved over to a large firm to do business development, right? Right. Yeah. So I left the left the federal government. Um, I did a, a quick stint over at a national commission out of the DOD right. and then returned to my roots of um, management consulting and solving problems uh, focused specifically on the VA. So. I have now worked with you in all sorts of capacities. <laughs> I think one of the things that you that you bring to the table that I wanted to talk to you about today on the podcast was this perspective that you have now. You had been a customer and I heard some of your frustrations with some contracting firms or some support that you were getting either from the contracting office or from the contracting firms themselves. And then you moved over to be 
in the in the government contracting space as a provider instead of as a customer. What lessons did you take from your time in government in selling to the government in in providing services to the government? That's a big question. Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I, the firm that I joined has really put a focus on hiring former government executives. Mm-hmm. Because of this exact question, you know, what do you see as a government employee that we don't see? Where are our blind spots as contractors? So many contractors grow up in the contracting business. You know, they go out of college, they, yep. they start, they get out of graduate school and they started a large firm. And the balance of former government executives providing that knowledge and feedback with the, you know, core skills of a management consultant has blended really nicely at my firm. And that was one of the reasons why I selected the firm I did. And the biggest thing that they draw on from the former government executives, of course, are, are areas of our expertise over the years. But also, at the end of the day, what does that customer look like and what does that relationship look like? And right. you know, what were some of the things that we like to see and what were some of the things that really turned us off? Right. So what were some of the things that really turned you off? Without naming any names of any firms. Um. <laughs> well, there were positives and negatives to almost all interactions. Uh, there's never a 100% um, positive. There were 99.9% positive experiences. Right. And I definitely believe in the purpose of the government contractor support to the federal government. Right. Um, oftentimes, we were tasked, my team was tasked very quickly to stand up a new proposal, a new policy. Mm-hmm. And and the things that I really like to see from the um, contracting community was a willingness to listen mm-hmm. and a willingness to bring a white paper in, which is kind of a standard BD practice. I think you guys have talked, you and Donna have talked about that before, mm-hmm. but, but it has to be a white paper that is based in a really deep relationship with the customer and a knowledge of what I'm going through. On paper, it may seem I have to execute A, B, and C in the next six months. But do you see all of the politics around it? And this is small P politics has nothing to do with who's in, um, who's in the white house. It has nothing to do with the administration. It's It's that small P politics of just what's happening in the office. Who has influence over the funding? Mm-hmm. Who are the who are the SES influencers? But I think more importantly, if the contractors were uh, watching the office and, and and really learning what the customer is is experiencing, who are those 14s and 15s also having a position of influence over what type of support that we would receive? Yeah. So the things that I really liked when the contractors would not just come by and drop off a white paper, but really spend time getting to know all the full picture of what we were facing, Uh, which I guess really leads into what we didn't like, which were large firms telling us what to do. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I'm sorry, not just large firms, any firm coming in and saying, you're doing this wrong. You should do it this way. Well, and we've got, have you ever heard us talk about our aspirin um, concepts? We've got, you know. Yes, you have a headache. Yep, yep. I, yeah. I, I, I listen to your podcast. I'm a big oh, fan. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So it's not just my mother listening. Uh, so I, I think we've had this conversation even before that podcast, hopefully. But it, it really is, you know, 
We see, I, I will not name the big firms that do it, uh, but there are some that are consistent about it. We've got this and it's your, we know that it's the solution to your problems, but we don't know what your problems are, right? We know generically what quote problems are in the government, but we don't know what your problems are. We don't know who, like you said, the influencer, the influencers are. We don't know who the stakeholders that actually yield power are or not, because it's not always based on their position or their title, but really their, their little people political influence in the office. You know, who's well liked is going to matter. Who needs to be bought into it and how they buy into it is going to matter. And so, you know, sometimes it feels like you can't break into somewhere unless you've got relationships there. But this this is part of the reason why, because you've got to understand implicitly how to approach something or at least have the ability to learn that if you don't have the access already. But that's, I think, one of the reasons why some firms feel like, you know, I, I can't get into a new agency or I can't get into the government because they're not letting me in. Well, the barriers to entry are there partially because you've got to really understand what the issues of that customer are. And so that makes it really hard. OK, so you are now at a fairly large firm. We see a whole lot of, of small businesses coming to us even. And we're not a large firm. But you guys have have requirements to actually work uh, specifically with small businesses at a at a certain level. You have to meet your small business goals. You have to, you know work with small businesses. When you are dealing with small businesses, what works and what doesn't in subcontracting out work to small businesses? When do you want to subcontract out to us or to another firm? How does it, what, what's the easiest way for a firm to get in to start working with you? And what are you looking for from that firm? So the firm that I work for has a set of core values, and I'm going to start there because we yeah. we have a set of core values that really focuses on this ecosystem of small businesses. And so we are looking to build relationships with small businesses, not just to meet our goals, but have we really have a commitment mm-hmm. to engaging with them. Mm-hmm. So with that said, and with that as like the baseline, it's it's easy for me to not just be on the hunt for small business to fulfill my numbers, but really focus on building relationships with small businesses so that we can, we can hit those numbers, but we also know what they're selling, right? What they're good at. You're right. A lot of, uh, I spent a lot of time speaking to small businesses. They do approach us frequently, especially in spaces, of course, where we have a a large footprint or we have really great relationships. Um, The space that I work in specifically in the VA is so focused on SDVOSBs and, um, veteran-owned small businesses, so service-disabled-owned small businesses and veteran-owned small businesses. I spend a lot of time engaging with the community, engaging with the veterans community to find small businesses, SDVOSBs, that are complementary to our services. So mm-hmm. I know you guys do this at WWC. I know you've got the chart out. Right. And you're looking at the opportunities that are coming down for the next 6, 9, 12, 18, you know, sometimes longer. Right. And you're looking at what what your company is good at, what you're known for in the space. And then you're looking for the gaps. We're not, right. uh, even as a large business, we're not able to, you know, necessarily 
come fulfill all of the different quals and requirements that every contract is coming down with. So there are gaps and you're trying to do reading the budget and figuring out where those gaps are and then building relationships for how to fill those gaps. You know, that's one easy way to do it where we can really then build a partnership with a small business. Right. One of the things that we get often, and I'm sure you do too, is we're a small business. You need us. There's got to be a, an upside outside of the small business status for that large business or for the government to be able to, to choose you. It's not just the, the small business status. Small business status helps when you've got the other piece of it there ready to go. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree. Coming to us and saying that you're um, a small business or you have certifications, that's fantastic. But we want to make sure that um, the partnership is valuable for so many different reasons. Right. You know, one of them is we want to make sure you're able to perform at a similar level. Right. And we want to make sure that you can, especially within the VA space, perform 50% of the work. So in my opinion, it, it definitely helps if you, as you're getting started, are really focused on a couple of different areas. You know, take a look at what the big businesses are doing. Where could you fit in? You right. know, where's your skill set? Where's your experience? Where are your relationships? And what is the value proposition for the, the large business? Right. Right, right, right. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the VA, which is somewhere I know nothing about. We are not an SDVOSB. We have done no work with the VA. I haven't really even tried because, again, as you said, they really do focus on making sure that they're meeting their numbers through SDVOSB. So even if they're doing, you know, HUBZone or uh, women-owned, it they, they also want to check that SDVOSB box for the most part, at least that's what I've heard and that's what I've seen. But again, we have we have not been really engaged. I know that you have seen a lot of things outside of VA. What is different about the VA? What is good about working with the VA? And how do you get how do you get work within that VA system in, in particular? Well, as you know, I'm, I'm committed to the veteran community. I'm not a veteran yeah. myself, but uh, my husband just retired last year, so we officially became customers of the VA. Yes. And in looking at opportunities after leaving government, I, I did have the knowledge of so many different agencies. That's one of those opportunities you just can't replace anywhere but working either on executive councils or government-wide policy or OMB. Right. The VA is a, is a fabulous organization with a wonderful mission. It is huge. And it's one of the largest procurement organizations in the entire federal government. It does have uh, goals specifically related to SDVOSBs and VOSBs. Mm-hmm. So those, those acronyms roll off my tongue, but <laughs> it, took, it took a while. It really did. Service disabled, veteran owned small business and veteran owned small business. You know, those goals together for FY19, Lauren, those goals were significant over 30% between wow. VOSB and SDVOSB. And to put it into perspective, you know, 5% are the disadvantaged businesses such as 8A. Right. So to work in the VA space, you've got a 30% goal going to veteran-owned. Right. And that is about $3 billion a year. Wow. 
So it's a, a ton of opportunity, right? Which is why we get a lot of people either asking for advice on how to set up an SDVOSB and a lot of people interested in this space. It's, it's a great space to work in and really interesting, good work. And as I mentioned, as I mentioned, the mission is so important, especially right. for a veteran community, you know, to work in the space that will impact you and your friends and family. So I chose the VA to work in. And as a large business with that large of a goal for small and disadvantaged businesses, it's it's difficult. But I, I believe it's important to support those SDVOSBs, which is why um, I believe there's still a role with for a large business to support um, SDVOSBs as they grow. Right, right. And you guys do that incredibly well. We have been so we have been a partner with your firm since before you were there, but certainly as, as you have been there, even outside of, because again, we're, we're not playing with you guys much in the VA, but you know, we've been working with you and you, you've linked us up for a number of different opportunities. You guys are great at working with small businesses and, and have been forever. So as a small business, What's the easiest way to get into working with a large business? Either first, it sounds like, you know, obviously with the VA, it's actually really as prime fairly frequently, right? Because they have so many set-asides that that they are looking for small businesses to prime work. But I would assume I've heard from a number of people and, and certainly is our experience that the first thing you need to do is is sub to someone to get that experience so that you can show that you've got experience as a contractor before you try to take on a prime bid. But how do you get to a large business and say, Hey, I want to be, uh, I want to be a provider to you. I want to be a partner to you. Is it through the, the website? You know, that every big business has a website that says, come partner with us. Is that the way to do it? It's a way to do it. Yes, it's definitely a way to do it. Uh, I would recommend leveraging the programs that are out there. So I think it's really three parts. Leveraging the training programs that are out there mm-hmm. that will get you really educated on the contracting space. It'll, it'll inform you of, of Kingdomware and the rule of two and how to engage with the TAC and the SAC and the contracting environment, just the mm-hmm. basics. Mm-hmm. And then the second, and those are through, you know, the Vets First contracting program at the VA, the small business SBA, Small Business Administration has a number of training programs. They're also local programs through your county vet's office. Yep. So that would be my first first piece, first pillar to get started. The second one would be to educate yourself on what's coming up. So educate yourself on the environment, you know, read that budget, especially at the VA, uh, take a look at the large procurements that are coming out, take a look at the small procurements that are coming out, look at what the buyer is buying. Mm-hmm. And as as part of that, also engage with the uh, nonprofit and trade associations and organizations out there that are um, engaging in those areas where the buyers are buying, because they often have the leadership attending those events now virtual, but getting to know who the buyers are. 
are and what they care about. You know, there's nothing more exciting than reading GAO reports, but that's what we do often. <laughs> and You're weird about that because I actually don't mind reading GAO reports. <laughs> I don't mind either, and, and we work closely with the GAO. We love working with them. Um, but you know, none of this sounds all that exciting, right? You know, read the budget. Um, read all the GAO reports. Mm-hmm. Take a look at what's happening on on the Hill. Mm-hmm. Definitely look at what the committees are doing and what they're focused on, because that will tell you where some of the needs will be over the coming 12, 18 months. Right. Um, I think the last piece before just just filling out that form on the website is is engaging with some of the thought leaders in the space, um, yep. reaching out on LinkedIn, become a thought leader yourself. Pick yeah. an area that you have experience in, either at the DOD or in your own private commercial life or within the VA or another part of government and become a thought leader in that space and really focus, 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 focus. So once you have the base knowledge of how contracting works within the VA and then layered on with the environment that we're working in with the budget GAO and the Hill and then become a thought leader or get to know the thought leaders within the industry organizations, then approach us. Yep. Yep. Well, <laughs> and and to have a really valuable conversation of this is where the VA is going and this is where I can help. Yep. And at that point, you're not really approaching you. You're in conversations with you already because you are part of that thought leadership, part of that networking. I mean, this all goes back to the way, you know, you got your OMB job was because, you know, we had been extremely close. I had seen how good you were. And a friend of mine needed someone who was as good as you. And so, hey, wait a second, let's put those two together. But that wouldn't have happened had we not had a long-term relationship and I had I not had a long-term relationship with the OMB official. But that's what networking is and that's what this takes. Mm-hmm. And this is, well, you know, those forms are absolutely something um, mm-hmm. and necessary. It's kind of the same thing as, you know, applying for a job. You have to apply for the job under the EEO rules. You absolutely have to put in that job posting, you know, your resume into the job posting, but that's not sufficient. Necessary, but not sufficient. And so the same thing with the networking, you have to put in, and in fact, I think we actually have done that before, even after you guys were, you know, okay, well, you have to fill out the, you know, all the forms and you have to fill out the, all of the OCI checks and all of the, the, the stuff that you do, particularly for, for a firm that does financial management like you guys do. But above and beyond that, you have to know the people and you have to be well regarded. So mm-hmm. I've seen a couple of really great firms who put out thought pieces, who put out newsletters, who put out, um, you know, there's there's a couple of people that I see on LinkedIn. I don't even know them. I've never met them. But when I see their name, I'm, I, I know that they are legit. And when we have a, when we as a small business has a need in, uh, you know, certain areas, it's, wait a second, those guys do whatever, ERP, or, you know, those guys do, counter threat finance, because I see them all the time talking about things that I know most of, but they're giving me more than I know. Right. So I've got the credibility of they actually know what they're talking about because I know what they're talking about. But wow, they've given me something to think about. Right. Um, Right. And and that credibility, I'll just make another comment, is so important in the government contracting space. Um, 
your reputation matters and your integrity matters and uh, treating people fairly, both small business and other large businesses that we partner with is, is so important to my firm. And I have seen it in action across the board. So the importance of that, I couldn't stress more. Yeah. And, and when you screw up, it gets known around the community. And when you're not a good actor, it gets known around the community. At the same time, when you are a good actor, it also gets known around the community. So, right. yeah, I mean, and, and certain firms have reputations of poaching people, of poaching work, of not doing the right things for the long term because they're so focused on their quarterly earnings. Um, and that's one thing I've seen, again, with, with your firm, that's not the case. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes maybe, but, you know, um, so it, it's, it's good. I mean, it's good to have that reputation and that long-term focus on that credibility building. So if you had one piece of advice, say you are starting your own firm, what would the best piece of advice you have in, you know, coming into this space as a small firm, what would you be thinking about if you were thinking about starting your own firm? Oh gosh, one thing. Or three things. It may be be a couple here. (laughs) There's a lot, isn't there? (laughs) There's a lot because it is, it's a, it's a big space. The number one thing I'd recommend is focus, Mm -hmm. focus on a small set of capabilities that complements large businesses as well as addressing the needs of the customer. Yes. Yes. I I can't tell you, and I know you have, we've talked about this before, so I know you have too, how many times I have seen a capability brief that has everything under the sun in it. No, you cannot do that well. If you are saying that you do operations, but also admin, but also training, but also this, but also, you can't do any of that well, particularly as a smaller firm. Obviously, right. once you get bigger, you you can do a lot more. But as a small firm, I think that is one of the most critical things that that I tell firms as well is you, you can't be all things to all people. Right. So wonderful. Well, uh, Mary, I, again, I always love talking to you. I, we don't get to talk nearly enough, particularly now that COVID means I can't travel up to D.C., but this has been fun. Thank you so much. I, I do want to do another podcast around all of the stuff that we've done in the military spouse space with Donna and maybe a couple of other people just chatting about that at some point. But for this, this has been great to kind of hear the perspective of someone who's been both in the senior levels of government and also the senior levels of a large firm and how that impacts small firms. So thank you very much for your time. And I look forward to our next podcast. Thank you, Laura. We couldn't have asked for better partners over the years and look forward to working with you in the future. Absolutely.